0: Please turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he took, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, And sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. physician. Heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what, you have, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. But to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But... He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You open up the paper one day and read the headline, Congregation Throws Preacher Off Cliff. What would you think to yourself? What would you say? Must have been a pretty bad sermon, you might think. That almost happened to Jesus. Why were they so offended? What did he say? Contrary to what many people might think, and you might disagree with me, I do seek to offend people when I am in the pulpit, except I try to offend the right people with the right thing. I want to offend people who don't know the Lord with the gospel. Every other time, I'm trying not to offend people, but... I do try to offend people with the gospel. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. He would also say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Why did the people have such terrible reaction to Jesus' message? Because they had false expectations of the Messiah. From this passage, I want to give you five stubborn facts about the real Messiah that offended them and may offend you. And if it does offend you, perhaps you haven't understood the news about Jesus, or if you have, you haven't understood the full implications of the gospel Before I tell you the five stubborn facts, let me tell you the story or set the stage. Jesus has come to his hometown. In verse 16, Luke wants us to know it's Nazareth. Now, in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6, this episode happens later in Jesus' ministry. It is most likely the case that Luke is putting it at the forefront of his account of Jesus' public ministry right after the temptations in the wilderness, but most likely it chronologically happened later. Most likely Matthew and Mark are giving us the appropriate chronology, but Luke is wanting us to see it because it's a good summary of Jesus' ministry. He's gained a reputation as a healer and as a miracle worker. People are wondering, what will this man say who is from our hometown? All of the eyes are fixed on him when he gets up, To preach. In that day, there would have been, in a local synagogue, prayer, reading of public prayer, singing of psalms. There would have been a scripture reading from Hebrew that would have been translated into the Aramaic, the local tongue. There would have been a sermon, a priestly blessing, perhaps the Aaronic blessing. What is ironic, not Aaronic, but ironic, in in this case, is that this is a fruitful field. You would think that when Jesus, the best preacher in the history of the world, came to his hometown, that he would have been greeted with, with triumph and, and great reception. You would have thought that this congregation would have been a bastion of following Jesus, perhaps a base of Jesus' operations. And yet, that is not what happens. Jesus gets up and he takes from the scroll of Isaiah, he reads a servant song from Isaiah, the fifth and the final servant song of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He includes a line from Isaiah 58, 6. The background to the text in Isaiah that he preaches from is Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee. Once every 50 years, once in a lifetime, there would be a forgiveness of debts. Those who had sold themselves into service would be free once every 50 years. This was the background to this text in Isaiah. His point when he gets up to preach and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, is to say I am the long-awaited Messiah. This is the day of salvation. Why was that so offensive? Here are five stubborn facts about the real Messiah that might offend you or offend it certainly offended them. The real Messiah, number 1, the real Messiah welcomes wicked people into his kingdom. Case in point would be the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. The widow of Zarephath was a Gentile idol worshiper, a heretic, a poor woman who was not respectable or moral, was a social outcast. Naaman was the general of Syria, which was an enemy of Israel. He would have been a murderer He had put people into slavery. He was an idol worshiper. These are the people that Jesus mentions as a part of the kingdom. When someone from a notoriously wicked background comes into our church and sits down on a pew next to you, what do you think? Why is someone like you doing in a place like this? What are you doing here? Is that offensive to you? Stubborn fact number two that we see in this passage. The real Messiah doesn't owe anybody anything. When Jesus preaches from Isaiah in verse 18 to proclaim good news to the poor, they might have been thinking, well, the economically poor... But that couldn't be what Jesus Jesus means, just the economically poor, because he uses the example of Naaman. Naaman would have been a well-off man. He means the poor in spirit. This might have been what they were thinking. Have we not kept the law of Moses, Jesus? You grew up in this area. You know how religiously we have devoted ourselves to the law. Have we not observed scrupulously the rules? Have we not worn our phylacteries? Have we not washed our hands and cleaned our dishes on the Sabbath? Have we not kept the law? Have we not offered long prayers, Jesus in the synagogue and on the street corners? Have we not clothed ourselves in sackcloth and ashes? When Jesus says he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives in verse 18, they might have been thinking, yes, That is what the Messiah will do when he comes. We are the oppressed. We're captives. Though the Roman oppressors have ruthlessly taken what belongs to us, they have taxed us beyond what we can bear. They have disrespected our people, and they have desecrated some of our holy places and things. When the Messiah comes, he will save us, not them. We're the prisoners. We're the poor. We don't have self-government. We do not have sovereignty. And when the Messiah comes, he will, set, he will give liberty to us. When Jesus says that he has come to recover, he quotes Isaiah, recovery of sight to the blind, they might have been thinking, well, when the Messiah comes, he can heal the blind if he desires, not on, not on the Sabbath day. That's fine, but at some point they realize, perhaps in verse 23, that Jesus is pointing the finger at them. You are the ones who are proud in spirit. You are the ones, even though you have been oppressed by the Roman government, you are the ones who are enslaved by your own sin. You are the ones who are blind, not healthy. And if you wish to have freedom, it will require nothing less than a sacrifice of someone of perfect character, someone like, or rather, identical to the Son of God. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. When you are in a bad situation, for them it was, they were being taxed by the Roman government, but when you are in a bad situation with sickness or your marriage is falling apart or you have a job loss, do you say to yourself, God, you owe me? Do you begin to see yourself as the, the oppressed, the victim, the, the one who hasn't really gotten what they deserve and rather had injustice, not justice. When you pray to the Lord, how do you think about your prayers? Do you see yourself as the one who is owed something? God does not owe you anything. The real Messiah does not owe you anything. Stubborn fact number three. The real Messiah knows you, the real you. Let me read to you Isaiah 58. This is what Jesus quotes. He quotes verse 6, to let the oppressed go free. That's what Jesus quotes. But here is Isaiah 58 in its full context. God says to Isaiah, declare to my people their transgression." They ask of me righteous judgments. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is this... The fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call that a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. God knows the real you. He's always known his people. From the Old Testament times, he knows what's in man's heart. The New Testament times, he knows what's in man's heart. That's why Jesus quotes at them. He knows perhaps what they're thinking. Surely you will quote to me this proverb. And he knows what you are thinking today. There are two ways to rebel against God and rebel against God. Jesus. One way would be to say, I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. I don't want anything to do with the church. I'm not going to church. I don't want anything to do with those people. That is the way of rebellion of the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son. He says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance that's coming to me. Essentially, I wish you were dead. But there's another way to rebel. It is to rebel through obedience. It is to say, I will do your will, God, but you must acknowledge the debt that you owe to me. It's the way of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son when the younger son comes home and he's reconciled to the father and he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never slaughtered a fattened calf for me. When you don't get the blessings that you think you are owed, you become angry. That's the telltale sign. Now, here might be a way that it could happen even in a Christian's life. It's a slippery slope. It might happen like this. God, haven't I been kind and generous and loving to my spouse for all these years? Haven't I poured myself out for my kids? Haven't I given my money to the church? Have I not volunteered my time on behalf of good causes? Have I not done all of these things, God? Have you not noticed all that I have done? It's a slippery slope. And it can lead to a form of self-righteousness before God. Stubborn fact number four. The real Messiah has given us all the signs that we need. If you look in verse 23, when Jesus says, Surely you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Clearly, he had done miracles in Capernaum. People were wondering, what's he going to do when he comes to his hometown? It's the hometown. We deserve the blessings. But they are so consumed with demands that they're unable to see the long-awaited Messiah standing right in front of them. They're not able to see Jesus for who he is. And as a result of that, they're not even able to see who they are. They're about to throw the long-awaited Messiah off a cliff. What do you want from God? What do you ask from God? He has given us all of the signs and wonders that we could ever ask for in his word. He does not owe us anything. The point of this is that, or the point of the cross is that we are all beggars outside the gates of the kingdom crying for mercy. Lord, help. Cover us with your righteousness. Bring us salvation we do not come on an equal playing field as if we can dictate to God anything. Here's the background to Naaman, the Syrian, in Second Kings 5. He is a general, but he has leprosy. Because he knows himself to be a great man, he wants to go through the appropriate channels to get God's blessing. He hears that there's a prophet in Israel who could cleanse him. He hears this from his slave girl, by the way. So he asks the king of Syria to write a note to the king of Israel to announce that he is coming. When the king of Israel gets the note, he tears his robes and he says, am I in the place of God that I could heal a leper? But Elisha says, hears it and says, bring Naaman to me. Naaman comes. If you read the account, Elisha doesn't even go out to greet him. He sends a servant out to him. And the servant says, dip in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be cleansed. How does Naaman react to that? He's furious. He's enraged. In fact, he turns around and wants to go home. He's about to leave it all there. I'm reading between the lines, but he says essentially, I would have thought that the prophet would have come out to greet me. I thought he would have waved his hands and done some signs and wonders. I thought he would have, reading between the lines, recognized that I am a great man and that I deserve to be welcomed appropriately but it doesn't happen. He humbles himself. He goes and he dips in the River Jordan seven times. And he comes out with skin that's smooth as a young boy's. Is bowing before Jesus too humiliating for you? Is confessing to God your sins is that just too low for you? Is that too grave? It's just it's too humiliating. When Jesus says that he has come to preach good news to the poor and proclaim freedom to the prisoners, he's saying that without him, you are poor, not rich. Without Jesus Christ in your life, you are enslaved, not free. You are blind, not healthy. And like the people of Nazareth, if Jesus is not someone that you have bowed before, then you probably are numb and cannot even feel the fact that you are a sinner. Stubborn fact number five, it's the final fact, the one that I'll leave you with. One day, whether you want to or not, you will meet the real Messiah. Where do I get that from this passage? It's what's left out. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, he only quotes 2a, the first part of Isaiah 62 verse 2. Excuse me, 61 verse 2. He leaves out this phrase, "the day of vengeance of our god." He leaves that part out when he reads from the scroll. Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows that when he came the first time that he was coming, not to deal vengeance, but to take vengeance upon himself, it's the reason he came. He came not to shed the blood of the Romans or to shed the blood of his enemies. He came to shed his own blood on behalf of his enemies. And apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are God's enemies. The whole point of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, and yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We need a Savior. Without a Savior, there is no hope. What will these Nazar- Nazarenes or Nazarites What will these people from Nazareth say on that day, the day that Jesus Christ comes again and he is treading the winepress of God's fury? When he brings the day of vengeance, when his robes are dipped in blood, what will they say on that day? Will they say, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Physician, heal thyself. What will you say? I heard about you, Jesus, but let's be honest, there was no sign. Will you say, there's not enough information, there wasn't enough information about you at the time? Will you say, no one ever really told me about you, Jesus? One day, the sneering and the jeering and the mocking and the scoffing of Christians and of Christ himself will turn into weeping and gnashing of teeth. What will you say on that day? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you. That you sent Jesus Christ as the suffering servant that Isaiah proclaimed. We thank you and praise you that what was foreshadowed in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, has come true in Christ, that he has set the captives free. We thank you that through your Spirit, you can open up our eyes to see not only who you are and the grace and mercy of Jesus, but also how defiled and corrupt and guilty we are. I pray that those who do not know you, who do not know the freedom and the riches of Christ, who do not know the health that is offered in him, would this day come to know you through the preaching of your word, not only here, but throughout the world. Help us to see where we are self-righteous, where by our good deeds of tithing, of volunteering, of generosity and loving our neighbor, how those good deeds sometimes can turn into forms of self-righteousness. We ask forgiveness for where we have done that we pray that you would cleanse us from all sin and make us followers of Jesus, not proud, self-righteous followers of ourselves, but followers of him. In Jesus' name, amen.